0: Good morning, the scripture reading for today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Lynn. Appreciate you reading that. So before we uh, jump into the Word, I just thought it would be kind of cool to acknowledge if you had pulled into uh, our parking lot this week, you would have found it filled with trailers from uh, the disaster relief. And uh, Ed and Margot represented our church well in serving this week, and I believe we had probably, what, 160 or so uh, members from churches all around uh, the the northwest or northeast region, uh, meeting here for our convention's uh, disaster relief program. So uh, that was uh, that was all week long, and it was quite the event. So praise the Lord, that we were able to use our facilities in that way. And uh, Ed and Margo, thanks for uh, serving the way that you did. Um, as we, uh, I'd like to invite you to turn to your scriptures to Ecclesiastes chapter three. Now, um, I do in, do really encourage you to do this because I like for us to stick our nose in, in the book. And uh, before we, we jump into it, I just want to refresh for a moment because I, I feel that Ecclesiastes is an intimidating enough book that if I can keep on rehearsing some of the things that will make it less so, then maybe you're more likely to approach it uh, later on on your own. And so we noted that there are just a couple of ways, and first of all, the, the title of this series is called A Handful of Clouds, and uh, this, this captures the idea that if you try to understand life on its own terms, you're going to come up with, with, with nothing. It will be insubstantial. But the second part of the, the subtitle is, is a search for a meaningful life. And this indeed is a way that we can find a meaningful life when we approach life, correctly. Now, we did note that there are three different ways to search for a meaningful life. The first one is the way that the professor um, is approaching it, and that is under the sun. In other words, insist on taking life on its own terms and uh, explore it on your own and just say, this is all there is. We could call this secularism, empiricism, And this is when you say, like, I have to be able to test it in a laboratory. Only what I observe and can reproduce is real. And if you do this, you will be led to despair. Now, of course, you could go another direction, and that's escapism. You could just stick your head in the sand and just say, you know what? I'm going to have my hobby. I'm going to live my life, and i just do the very best I can. I'm not going to think about it. And we did note that the majority of, of people approach life in that way. But there is a third way. And that's to listen to God's word, to allow God to speak into it. And we noted that apart from God, our toil is indeed vain. We've noted that a meaningful life is found in enjoying the gifts from God's hand. It's not found in wisdom or possessions or pleasure, but it's actually from receiving it and thanking God for the gifts that he gives us. When you follow Jesus Christ, everything is full of meaning. We also noted a couple vital terms for us in this search. The first was the identity of the person speaking to us, the professor, the teacher, the preacher, the quester, or you could just transliterate it and call him Koheleth. And, uh, and this is a fascinating character. He may sound like a skeptic as he begins to float different ways of approaching life and float his observations, but he's doing it so he can pop them and deconstruct them and take them apart. And we're going to see, both by glimpses throughout the book and by the end, that Koheleth is firmly a man of faith. A second really important term is the word vanity, or the Hebrew word is hevel. And that's, uh, I was searched for this word last week. It's an automatopoeia. Automatopoeia, right? Where you can actually, if you say the word hevel, it makes you do what it is, which is vapor. It's breathing out. The idea is that it is brief, It disappears, it is insubstantial, this is a shape-shifting word. So you kind of have to look at, most of our translations call it vanity, but you kind of have to look at the context. Sometimes it kind of means meaningless, or absurd, or vanity, and you just kind of have to read it for how it is. So it kind of encompasses a lot of different, different concepts. The third term or phrase that would be very helpful is under the sun. And this kind of limits the observations. And so we're not allowing God to speak into it. We're just observing what is before us. And uh, there's a ceiling, you could say. And there's no word from above the sun, in other words, from God. And that is what Koheleth is saying. If you try to do it that way, you will despair. But we're going to be pressing to say we need to let God in. We need a word from above the sun, from God. And if you try to understand life on its own terms, it's like trying to grab a handful of clouds with a boxing glove, right? Thank you, Mike Tyson. Today's sermon is called How to Inhabit Time. Now, right off the bat, I have to acknowledge that I stole that title from a book I read a couple years ago, a guy named uh, James K.A. Smith. And it just really, really encompassed kind of what I want to drive at today. Like, when you understand time, you'll know how to live in it well, so while browsing at uh, Goodwill, uh, Newark, Main Street, I came across a biography, a nice, thick biography, of our 42nd president, William Jefferson Clinton. Now, I knew a lot about Clinton, I thought, but I thought maybe this guy could shed some more light on, on this, this guy's life. So I picked it up for a Buck 99, All right, A lot of words for a dollar 99. The biographer documented one of the scandals of the age that kind of was a preview of one of the ones that Clinton was going to be involved in. And it involved some of the televangelists of that time. The televangelist in question, aided by an associate, arranged for a supporter to be flown down to a location and there had a weekend fling. And seven years later, it turned out from her testimony that this was against her will. At the time, the associate assured her, and maybe you would remember some of this, it's just some of the most sickening words I've ever read, assured her, he's a shepherd, and when you help the shepherd, you help the sheep. The evangelist and his associate went on air that night, and the associate goaded him. He said, hey, you had a good rest today, to which the evangelist replied, yeah, I need more rest like that. The Lord really ministered to us today. We need more ministry like that. You know, when I read that, I just, I felt sick. And I mean, I didn't even realize it, but I was just like, I said out loud, have you no fear of God? And that's the right question. You know, it really leads you to ask the question, how does one conclude that it is the right season to do such a thing? To conclude that it was good and appropriate and suitable to do such a thing? Can you imagine the poem that Lynn just read to us beautifully? There's a time for everything under heaven, a time to fleece your flock, a time to prey upon the vulnerable. You know, something went wrong in these men's souls. Something went monstrously wrong. So how to describe it? Well, you could say, if you want to use the phraseology here, they misread the time. Like when you reach out and you see something that is not yours and it is out of season, they're misreading time. Or you could say that they had no fear of God. And later on in our passage, we're going to see that's exactly where it brings us. They misread the time. They had no fear of God. Now, you will be happy to know that it had grave consequences for all involved. This man lost his ministry and went to jail But the point for us today is if you misread or ignore time, you'll live foolishly. Koheleth, the teacher, professor, is likely addressing young men who are in a time where they are busy making their fortunes, they're being encouraged to live autonomously of God, to not factor God into the equation, and he's going to teach them how they are supposed to inhabit time in a wise way. How does he do this? Well in verses 1 through 8 he first observes that there are suitable rhythms to life. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 for everyone for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So for everything there's an appropriate time. Nothing according to scripture is random. The next verses are going to illustrate this concept with with a poem. Now, yeah yeah, yeah, I know, the birds, right? Turn, 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 right? Some of you are singing it in your heads right now. If I don't say that, somebody's going to approach me afterwards and say, did you know? Yes, I know. Okay. Um, but time, time, time is said 28 times. There are 14 lines, seven couplets. If you're familiar with numerology and scripture, you know seven is is perfection. But when you take seven and you've doubled it twice... He is saying, like, this is everything that there possibly is to life. This is all there is. A time to be born and a time to die represents both the beginning and the end and everything in between. And then everything follows after that phrase is going to just show, like, this is the whole of human experience. We're going to note in verses 2 and 3, beginnings and endings, a time to be born a time to die, that's human life, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, that's plant life, a time to kill and a time to heal. What would that be about? Well, perhaps a just war or capital punishment, but there's also a time to heal those who have been in it, a time to break down and build up buildings. I recall when we lived in Boston, there was a live feed of a historic building that they were imploding, And it had become, you know, an eyesore and a hazard and, uh, you know, drug activity was happening. And so we watched this thing live as this this building just just implodes. They determined that it was a time to tear down. We've all had that outbuilding, that shed that's like, okay, it served its purpose. Now it needs to go. Verse 4 speaks to our emotions. Weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, at funerals and by hospital beds, Mourning is appropriate. At weddings, dancing is appropriate. When the Lions make the playoffs for the first time in seven weeks or seven decades, you see a little bit of both, don't you? But verse five, clearing fields, says, time to throw stones and time to gather them. You know, if you drive through New England and in some places, you see just miles and miles of stone wall. They've taken it from the field and they've thrown it aside so they could plant. And then they build something up with it. Verse 6, physical affection, a time to embrace. You may kiss your bride. It's also sometimes, and I've been with couples before, where they've decided that it's time to refrain from embracing and they've separated for a period of time for prayer or to work on their marriage. And so you have physical affection. Verse 6, possessions a time to seek new possessions, or a time to let them go. When to acquire and when to downsize. My tool pegboard at home has tools from William Bailey. That would be Natalie's grandfather. And, uh, and I have tools from her dad that he said, we're downsizing, would you like these? And yes, indeed, I did. You've got to know when that is. Time to keep and a time to cast away when to hold your stocks, when to trim and to cut your losses. Verse 7, mourning, a time to tear. We have accounts of Scripture where Job and Jacob had great tragedy and they tore their clothes. But there's also a time to sew, a time to stop mourning and to sew them up. Some of you know Brother Neil Webster, who sometimes sits right back here. He called me while I was preparing this sermon to just tell me of a a heartbreaking tragedy in his extended family. And then he asked the question, what do you say? That's wisdom right there. Sometimes you don't say anything. You be silent, and there's time to speak. Job's friends were a good example of knowing both when to be silent, but then you wish they would continue to be silent when to speak. Verse 8, personal emotions, love and hate. Now, that does say, like, well, when is it time to hate? But you'll notice that it's coupled with with war and peace. And when you're sighting somebody down the, you know, a rifle sight, you have no personal animosity against that person. But in a time of war, you hate the enemy, and there is a time for that. So what a beautiful poem. But one thing I do want you to note is that it is very similar to something that we revisited just a couple weeks ago, and that is a poem about nature in chapter 1. I'm going to put these side by side. And so in chapter 1, you had a poem about nature. Here you have a poem about the seasons of life. Chapter 1 asked this question, what do people gain? Verse 3. This asks the question in verse 9, what gain has the worker? In chapter 1, there are cycles of sun, wind, and water with no gain. And here we have the fact that the seasons of humanity undo themselves, which I'm going to rewind just a little bit and go back to the first observation. There's a suitable time for everything, but let's complete his observation. There's a suitable rhythm to life, but they leave us with no gain. Ecclesiastes verse 9 here, what gain has the worker from his toil? So in spite of its beauty, the poem leads us to the same conclusion as chapter 1. There is no gain. It turns out that the relentless, remember the 28 times that it says time, 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 over and over again, it could either be beautiful or it could be just a little bit oppressive. They sound like hammer blows and they're sealing us into a time that we cannot escape. Commentator Derek Kidner notes two disturbing implications from this. Number one that we're dancing to a tune not of our own making. Now, it doesn't say at this point who wrote that tune. We have to wait for just a moment for that. But you're going to get this feeling like if you are in these seasons and one second you're doing something and a second later or a year later or or 70 years later you're undoing what you did. Why? Why am I even doing this? The second we know is that nothing we pursue has any permanence. You're doing this now, but soon afterwards, you're going to be doing the opposite. There are activities in this poem that we seem to control, but we actually do not. You can choose to plant that apple tree, but you can't make it thrive. And then when it dies, you cannot control the end of its life. You could also say, well, I can choose to plant in the middle of the winter. I can plan outside my my planting zone. But you can't control the outcome of that. You can build and you can beat back decay, but when time has its way, that outbuilding will become an eyesore and need to come down. So the truth is, we can only control and respond. We cannot control anything. We can only respond to things that are already set for us. Philosophers call this a feeling, and here's just an interesting term, of thrown The feeling that the life that I've worked hard to create still feels like one I've been thrown into because the possibilities were decided before I arrived. There are suitable rhythms of life, but they'll always undo each other. That is the first observation. The second observation, verses 10 and 11, is that God gave the gift of eternity in our hearts. Look at verse 11. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, in verse 10, he notes these words, I have seen. Okay, so this is one of his under the sun observations. He's just going to say, I've I've looked around and I've noticed something about men and women. They have eternity in their hearts. And so he's going to observe four things. These are things that he has seen. Number one, it is God who assigns the seasons in verses 1 through 8. So in 1 through 8, it didn't tell us who made those seasons. But now we find out that it is God that gave us this business. It also notes this, that um, Eugene Peterson says it in the message, what God has given us to do, busy work mostly. It's true. In light of what we just read, if a season is always going to shift to its opposite, you begin to wonder, are we just spinning our wheels? Are we just having busy work? Why should I even engage at all? Now, he makes a second observation that kind of tempers that just a little bit. He's made everything beautiful in its time, or you could say suitable, everything suitable or beautiful in its time. The observation about busy work is tempered by the fact that there's something beautiful about the pattern of it. The fallen tree that I noticed in a hike the other day became the home of squirrels, and it became the hummus that new growth began to grow out of. The old saint says, I've lived my life. It's been a good one. I'm very thankful. There's something beautiful about that acceptance. Our lives are a lot more like a kaleidoscope than a changing, than a frozen painting, It's the change and the ebb and flow that makes it beautiful. Now, we may wish for things to remain static, but remember that to be static is to be dead. And so there's something beautiful about the shift and the ebb and flow of time. Next, he notes that God puts eternity in our hearts. So as verses 1 through 9 shows, we have this sense that there are seasons, that we are in seasons and we are shifting with them. But we also have this sense that there's a duration beyond those seasons that we do not have access to. Now, this is a positive thing, and this is a gift. This is what makes us different than the animals. Yes, squirrels go and bury nuts, but that is their instinct. We are different. We look ahead. We plan for things. This is one of the ennobling things about being human or being a human being. And so, eternity in our hearts is a good gift. It is an ennobling thing for us. However, however, despite this good gift of eternity that God has given us, there is a limitation to it. Notice the last part of the verse. God gave the gift of eternity, and I'm going to finish out our phrase here, yet we cannot know the end from the beginning. So, we can't find it out. You could say, but still, even though he gave us this good gift of eternity, but still we cannot find out the end from the beginning. We still do not know what God is up to. Somebody used an illustration like this. It's as if, picture yourself being in a room, even maybe a room this size, and there is a mural, a massive mural, but the room is somewhat narrow, and so no matter where you are, you cannot back up far enough to see the whole thing. That's very much like our life. We can look at individual parts of it, and we can see it, but we'll never be able to encompass the end from the beginning at the same time. And what this does, this, this gives kind of a, we've got this sense of enigma, all right? We've got the sense of duration, but we can't see it. And that is that is can be very, very frustrating. Uh, I'm shocked that he doesn't throw a vanity in here for good measure. You know, a sense of eternity in the heart is a good gift, but it does create a tension because we're time-bound. And we want to know the duration, but we can't see the picture. Which leads us to a final observation about time. Okay, so it's suitable, but we can't see the end from the beginning. It is, it's eternity in our hearts, but we can't know what God is doing. So what are we going to do here? What do we do? Our task is he says, is to live wisely in that tension. And We see this in verses 12 through 15. Now, I want you to note two, two phrases there. So, verse 10 start off with, I saw. Okay, so that's an observation that he's going to make. But then in, in verses 12 through 15, twice, he says, I perceived. So, now he's going to make a, a conclusion from, from this observation. A conclusion so he's, gonna, he's saying that we're time-bound creatures and we have eternity in our hearts. So what are we supposed to do? Okay, so here are his conclusions. First, we need to enjoy our time as a gift. Verses 12 and 13 says, I perceived. Okay, so this is his, his conclusion. There's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, I had a question in my mind. Does this apply to the wise, the people who are allowing God to speak into their life, or is this only applying to the autonomous, intelligent person? I think both. I think this is one of those places where we are in the same situation but respond to it differently. To the intelligent, autonomous man, the fact that that this is it, you just do the best you can and enjoy life causes dismays. The existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre wrote this. It was true. I had always realized it. I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing. Nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. I first came across that quote in, uh, in Tim Keller's book, the, the Reason for God. You know, and that is right there a logical conclusion if you're living only under the sun. For that person, the best you can do is do good. In other words, do the best you can. Just Just do the best you can. And notice that it only lasts as long as they live. That's the best John Paul could do. But I recall another time, and this is, this is something where this is how it strikes somebody who is allowing God to speak into their life. I recall another time when the youth group came during uh, their Love the Neighbor group. And uh, they helped me install a commercial swing for my son. Now, swinging is one of the few activities that he, he really enjoys, and so they came, and we dug through three feet of good Delaware white clay. Oh, yes. And we poured 300 pounds of quickcrete to install this commercial swing set. I'm looking for Henry Speed. Henry was there. Some of the Robinson boys were there as well. And, uh, you know, although there will be a time to tear that swing set down, that going to outlive our house, actually. <laughs> there will be a time. The time was not today. You're going to know that, like, even though installing a swing set is just a blip in eternity, however, it was a labor that was done for the Lord, and it carries its own reward. And so as we stood there just sweat-soaked with clay all over us, sipping lemonade, enjoying our fellowship, and looking what we had just done, what did we feel? satisfaction, even, should we say, pleasure. If you've ever admired a job well done, a well-weeded garden bed, or a new new layer of mulch, or a painted object that you have, have spent time on, and you step back, and yeah, it was hard work, but you know the feeling and the smile of God at that time. Enjoying our time as a gift is part of inhabiting time wisely. As we noted the other day, it's never seeing those things as ultimate, but seeing them as a gift from the hand of God, and that is a wise way to live. So that's one way that we should respond. Second, we should stand in awe of the one who is over time. Read with me verses 14 and 15. I perceived, okay, there's, there's that phrase again, okay, here's his second second thing that he perceived, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God has done it. This is a very important phrase. So that people may fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. A really key verse. God acts so that people will fear before him. Fear is not terror of God, but a reverential awe of one who can our eternity holds our eternity. Why do we stand in awe? Well, some of it we we stand in awe because of what became before. Like if you have the one here who set the seasons for us, then that is an awe-inspiring thing. If he has circumscribed our seasons, if if he inhabits the eternity, the end and the beginning that we can't wrap our minds around, that this is one who is bigger than us, and we should stand in awe of him. However, this verse also tells us why we should stand in awe. Whatever God does endures forever. Now, tough to argue with that. Yeah, you know, it'd really be harder it would be harder to find a stronger expression of his kingship in the Bible. Whatever he does endures forever. Now, that can strike us in a couple different ways. I appreciated one of the commentators and noted that Romans 11:22 and I'm going to put this on the screen is kind of a commentary on this. Listen to this verse. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, the, the context of this is speaking of Israel and the Gentiles. When Israel rejected God's plan, he set them aside and he grafted in the Gentiles so that they would have salvation. And, but I, I want you to note this analogy here. And so to those under the sun who, who buck against his kingship, who say, I, I do not like this they're going to see this like Jean-Paul Sartre as, as severe. But to those who say like, yes, I accept your kingship. I, I find comfort from it. Then to them, it is kindness. It strikes us as divine faithfulness and sureness. If my times are in his hands and his purpose stands forever, then I will accept it. and I'll respond with gratitude. And I'll respond with confidence. Now some... This may strike them as fatalistic, but it's far from that. It's actually just the response of creatures to their good God. He supports his observation with a proverb. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. There's nothing new. It it already existed in the mind of God and has been established. And then this phrase. Fascinating phrase, God seeks what has been driven away. Well, what's been driven away? And what is God seeking? Well, I would think that you could put it this way, God overlooks nothing. And so perhaps all those things that elude our understanding, all the beginning to end stuff, the stuff that we can't wrap our minds around because we're time-bound creatures and we're limited, all those things that we cannot quite get our hands and our minds around, they're safe. In God's keeping. Where we leave, he picks up. Jesus, Jesus taught a healthy relationship with God, who's over time. Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus warns his followers that those who follow him will be persecuted by people who take only an earthly perspective and reject him. If one believes that our times are in his hands, not in theirs, then we'll have a healthy disregard for earthly threats. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It sounds very, very harsh and scary, but he's saying like when you combine this brief persecution and embracing God versus an eternity with him, obviously this one pales. We have an earthly disregard for those who can kill our body. Further, Jesus reminds us the one who inhabits eternity is also our Father. Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this. Say it with me. Our Father in heaven. Stop there. Well, our Father in heaven. Look at the tension of that. And so here we have in heaven, He is far from us, He is transcendent, He is other than us, yet He is ours, our Father. He is both other and ours. He is both away from us and he is in a familial relationship with us. You know, to be an intelligent, autonomous man is better than being a thoughtless, foolish one. To believe that God speaks like the preacher and the young men he hopes to persuade is even better. But to know that God is your father? He didn't know that. That is on another level. And that is one of the good gifts that Jesus purchased with his blood for us. So kind of looping back to the, the televangelist at the beginning. If this man truly believed that God sets the times, would he have concluded that that fateful weekend was a season to embrace and to gather what was not his own? No. He was clearly out of season. Would he have mocked God's providence on national television if eternity was before his eyes? Would he have overreached and taken a gift that was clearly not his if he was content with the good things God has given? No. In other words, there was no fear of God, and so he inhabited time in a twisted way. You know, every time you and I do not read the times correctly, Whenever we walk into a funeral parlor or somebody who, who requires comfort and we, we run our mouths or we laugh loudly in a place, we are not reading the time correctly. We are not fearing God. But when we walk with wisdom and allow him to speak into our lives and we read the times, that is what it means to be wise and to fear God. And so, in summary so that people may fear him. Here are four ways, and these are, these are not new. This is kind of what we, just a recap for us to think about. So number one, accept the seasons that he set as suitable and respond to them rightly. Now that is the work of a lifetime, learning to respond wisely to what season God has put before you. Second, Allow eternity and limitations to cultivate a longing. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Not frustration. Third, enjoy his gifts. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Enjoy your job well done. Enjoy the food he has put before you. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your children. Enjoy your grandchildren. But don't mistake the good for the ultimate. And finally, rest. Rest in his purposes. And let him pursue what we don't understand. Because there's plenty. And when we grab that, we will rest. When we get this, we will begin to understand how to inhabit time. Let's pray. Lord, we do rest in your purposes, and we do thank you for your kingship, and we do thank you for the beauty of the earth and the life that you have given us, and we thank you for Jesus Christ, who purchased so much for us, our sonship and our daughtership with you, so that we can pray indeed, our Father who is in heaven, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.